0: Church, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. So we've made our way this Advent season through our Advent themes of hope and peace and joy. Now we find ourselves at love. And love could really be the the culmination of all of those things because where is it that we find our Hope, our our forward-looking, ever-expectant, confident Christian hope is in the love of God that He's already displayed and the confidence that we have that He will continually show His love faithful. Well, where, where is our peace? We have peace with God because God loved us enough to send Christ for us. Well, where's our joy? Well, we rejoice. We have great joy at what God has done in so tangibly expressing and showing His love for us in Christ. And so this morning, with our theme of love, it really is the culmination of all that we've already looked at. And what we have to ask ourselves is, what motivates God to act? What motivates God to act? What is the driving force behind God's decisive action throughout history? Throughout this Advent season, we've pointed to the incarnation as God's decisive action, purposing to redeem His remnant and to make Himself known among the nations. We've seen how God's action in bringing Christ into the world provided confident hope, which bears fruit of present peace and rightly realigns our joy in Him. And so this morning... We'll see that God's love is the the fountainhead from which the hope and the peace and the joy of Christmas flow. God's love is also that motivating factor which moved him to decisively act according to his will. So what motivates God to act? God motivates God to act. If you'll remember, when we started this Advent journey through the book of Isaiah, I noted for us that Isaiah presents us with three different portraits of Christ, the first being that of Christ as King, and we've focused heavily on this portrait for the first three weeks of Advent. As, uh, all these uh, those last three weeks of sermons have focused, been in that area where Isaiah paints this picture of Christ as king. And so this morning, we're going to take a, a big leap to chapter 42. And in chapter 42, we see that secret, second portrait which Isaiah paints for us. And it's that of Christ as servant. And this portrait so perfectly captures and depicts our Advent theme of love. For it is in the servant nature of Christ that we see the love of God made manifest to us. So I ask you to stand, church, in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, is our text this morning. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, as we read these incredible words... As we continue to celebrate this incredible season of Advent and all these realities that bring us to an exuberant joy and just make us want to shout with gladness at what you have accomplished for us in Christ, I pray that you would help focus our minds this morning on all of these incredibly wide-reaching realities. Help us to kind of sift through these things and, and, and hold tightly to these feelings that Your Word brings about in our heart, and help us to respond accordingly. And may those be the lens through which we view and, and live out this Christmas season and every Christmas season. May it be focused squarely on all that You have accomplished for us in Christ and the love displayed there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. I hope you grabbed an outline on the way in this morning. If not, that's okay. You can just take notes. And uh, the screen behind me will have the answer to the outline and and will detail all the things that we see there. But after having spent the first three servants of Advent within the first 11 chapters of Isaiah, now we, again, as I said, take a big leap forward. And Isaiah, as we recall, his ministry starts with his call in chapter 6, which is dated as taking place in the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah's ministry overlaps the reign of four kings of Judah, that being Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So we have four kings that span the, the time of Isaiah. And we've jumped from the, here this morning, we've jumped from the reign of King Ahaz, which takes up a large chunk of uh, the book. And uh, we see Ahaz, he was a king that was displeasing to the Lord. And now we've jumped to being under the reign of King Hezekiah. And there's also another point of historical context that we need to make here, and that's that Assyria, we've been talking a lot about that and and how the the implications on what Isaiah was saying and how everything that he was saying was was being realized in that day, but how he was also pointing forward to the coming Christ. And so this Assyrian rule, this Assyrian assault, uh, it's, it's taken place here. Now, under the reign of King Hezekiah, it's come, and the people have been taken into exile. This is the famous Babylonian exile, and this is a time of great distress and grieving and and searching for answers and clinging to that hope that Isaiah so boldly tried to get the people to see what God was doing in the midst of all this. And this brings me to our text today, because in this searching... Brought about by the suffering of this Babylonian exile, the Lord gives an answer to how He is going to ultimately make things right. He reminds them that He is sending someone, that He has provided someone in the future, a future coming, but He is remaining faithful to His promise through the line of David. And so we know that he is sending a vulnerable child king. That's what we've seen in those first 11 chapters, is this king comes as no ordinary king, but that the one he's sending now, Isaiah begins to paint uh, maybe not even a different portrait would be the way to describe it, but he he begins to, to paint this portrait in a different light, to give us a different perspective on what we're seeing, all right? Now, we all have Christmas memories, things that we got, gifts that we got, things that we enjoyed, things that we didn't, right? One of my uh, funniest Christmas memories is one time my brother and I, we got to open presents early. I think I might have told this story last year, but we've slept since then, so just act like this is your first time hearing it, okay? So we wanted to open a present early. Our grandmother let us, and we opened it, and it was jeans, right? Right? and every, every child's greatest dream. And uh, I, you give me jeans now, I'm going to be really excited if I get a pair of jeans. Um, so we open these jeans, and of course, both my brother and I are thinking it, but my brother's, he, and he's typically the one that's going to say it. If there's anything uh, that needs to be filtered, it doesn't get filtered with him, right? And he says, oh, I thought it was going to be a real present right? And so, then I get to be like, come on, man, you know, like, that, that kind of gets me to look good. And it reminds me, my friend Caleb uh, told me a story just a while ago of the present that he got last year. It was just a book with his face in it, and he didn't, you know, that's what his grandmother gave him, and he wasn't all that excited about that, but she's giving him something good this year, he said. So, <laughs> he's really excited about that. Um, well, I, I tell those stories and those funny little anecdotes because this is like, like God has been saying, I'm sending something really good here, that there's something that waits on the horizon that you want to cling to for hope, that you can look to for peace and that you can find true joy in, and it's not going to disappoint when, when it gets here. Right? And so as we look at our text this morning, we see it open with this triumphant uh, announcement of, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So this begins the first of four servant songs that we see Isaiah give us as he's giving this different perspective, this perspective of Christ as servant. He gives us four servant songs. Now, this term of my servant throughout this um, portion of Isaiah, really starting in chapter 40, is kind of used interchangeably. It's used to refer to the people as a whole. But then there's these few times when it's clearly talking about a certain individual. And this, these servant songs so clearly depict that he's, he's here using the same phrase of my servant not to just talk about the people as a whole, not to talk about David, but to talk about a, a clear individual that's coming. And so these have been fitly titled The Servant Songs of Isaiah, as I said. So what, what is God's solution? What is this present that He is telling them of, this action that He is sending to their current plight that they can experience all of this hurt and this anguish in the time, but yet they can look forward and have every bit of confidence and hope and peace and joy in their salvation that awaits in God? It's this, a great military leader who comes waving a banner that the people can rally around no someone who's going to rise lead them in rising up against their oppressors and overthrowing this Babylonian exile no what is this great triumphant announcement behold my servant behold my servant the lord creates a clear Contrast here because this term of, of servant would not have been something that they would have been like, Yeah, right? It's not like, like when, when you're announcing a leader, that's not something that you necessarily look for or think of, right? That was supposed to be given just great hope, and to them, it's like a servant, right? But he's cre- creating this clear contrast, all right? So if you look at the kind of the, the last verses there. Of chapter 41. Right? You might have to turn the page in your Bible or maybe not, but you can see there in the last verses, he's talking about all of these empty and the futility of these idols that they have constantly gone to, time and again, and the, the, that their oppressing nation looked to. And even just the last two verses there of chapter 41, verses 28 and 29. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer? So he's saying these idols, they can't talk. If I ask a question of them, there's no response, right? There's no counselor. Verse 29 Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Like their works, you add it up, and like, there's nothing there. They've done nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is what God is saying about the futility of these idols. And then what's the next phrase? Look at all the emptiness of these idols. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So look at this empty wind that does nothing. It can give you no answer. Like the one I'm sending, he brings justice to the nations. He does something. He's active. And not only that, I am active. These idols, they're weak and they're powerless, causing only continued chaos and sinfulness. But the servant of God comes in complete harmony with God's will, and he comes to bring justice. Earthly kings and judges and rulers, they can only bring justice to their jurisdiction because this is the other amazing thing about what we're told about this servant. So think about that. All other forms of justice, any, any, any leadership title that can have some shadow of justice in our life, can only bring justice to their jurisdiction, right? But this servant, where is he bringing justice to? The nations. There is no jurisdiction. There is no border or boundary where this stops, but this is coming to the nations, Right? This title of servant presented with the role of ruler creates a clear contrast with the thinking of this world. Because in the eyes of the world, rulers must be strong, never presenting weakness or inferiority. The servant comes as ruler, and this ruler comes as a servant. And there is no separating the two here. That He is a vulnerable servant, child, king. The other perplexing thing for the flesh is that this ruler comes for the world. As I said, everyone comes to the king. That's what happens in this world. Everyone comes to the king, right? But for God's kingdom, what's happening here? This king comes to the world. Like in our society, in our culture, across all cultures, as a matter of fact, if you want an audience with the king, with the president, with the prime minister, whatever, wherever you are, you have to go to them. You've got to go through proper channels, protocol, get permission, do all these things. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, whom I so delights. I put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nation. So He is coming to you. and This is what's perplexing for our flesh because God is at work here redefining His people. The whole world is under exile, not just just His people here, but the whole world is under exile, not at the hands of the Babylonians, but under the exile of sin. So the servant comes to bring justice that He might right that atrocity, not just for Judah, not just for the remnant, but for the nations, bringing what the people of God and the world have lacked. He's bringing the complete Word of God. But why? Why does this ruler come? Why does he need to come? The answer lies in the title he's given here. I want to point us to that once again because so much is packed in just this first verse. My Servant. He comes because he is primarily a servant. This is a servant king. And you see, the thing about true servants, true servants, is they don't serve for selfish gain or ulterior motives. They serve because they love. They lower their status for the good of the one whom they are serving. Bringing me to our first point for this morning. And that is that in the incarnation of Christ, we are emphatically and tangibly shown that God does not rule at a distance. God does not rule at a distance. And this brings up something I want to point out to us that although Isaiah gives us these three distinct portraits of the Messiah, Christ reigns with all of these titles simultaneously. Because in Christ, God shows that his rule is personal. He is a hands-on ruler who dwells among his people, who serves his people, who sacrifices for his people because he loves those who are his. This is ultimately what Christ shows us, that God's kingdom is not about establishing political dominance or parliamentary rule. That God sent His Son, born of flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, to save those under the law. As we continue reading, we see more of the characteristics of this coming child, servant, king. Verse 2, we pick back up. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice to the nations. So poetically, we have this bringing forth of justice to the nations there at the end of both of these, kind of these first statements in this song. These sayings are somewhat, as we start with verse 2 there again, these sayings are somewhat equivalent of us saying of someone else that they wouldn't hurt a fly, right? Because nobody likes flies. They're obnoxious, they're annoying, they're dirty. In fact, back in was it spring or summer, I bought a salt gun just so I could kill flies, right? And I enjoy using that thing, all right? I enjoy taking out my, my justice on those flies, right? So, now, everyone delights in killing those flies, but this servant king who's coming, he doesn't even break a reed that's already bent over. He doesn't even snuff out a wick that's on its last leg. Rather, he faithfully brings forth justice without having to stand in the tradition of heavy-handed earthly kings. He comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how does this servant king rule? With an iron fist of fear and a heavy-handed conquering ambition? No. Once again... The servant king flips the wisdom of this world on its head. The Lord's servant king rules with meekness, humility, vulnerability, empathy. Confusingly, his power comes not from his ability to crush or to break or to quench, but from his swift and sure justice. He doesn't break over this already bent over weed. He doesn't snuff out that wick that's already dimly lit. But he faithfully brings forth justice. He does not stand in the streets loudly proclaiming his rightful rule, but rather quietly. The point here is that the the characteristics of the servant and of the child that we read of in chapter 9 and the shoot that we read of in chapter 11 The characteristics here are one and the same. So as as I pointed, we're getting these different portraits, but they're of the same person. So maybe rather than describing them as different portraits, they're they're the same portrait, but we're getting different perspectives of the same portrait. So the the child of chapter 9, the shooter of chapter 11, and the servant here of chapter 42, one and the same. Confoundingly simplistic when compared to the adult rulers of this world. This divine child servant king rules with complete power by showing overwhelming grace. And that's the next point on your outline, that God rules with overwhelming grace. So church, may we be in awe of the love and the grace of God displayed for us in the Christmas story. God sent His servant. Consider that. That we desperately needed, so God sent. He provided what we desperately needed, yet did not in any way deserve. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If you are here this morning and you didn't know that you needed a Savior, my prayer for you is that this Christmas... You would be overwhelmed with the grace of God provided you with what you did not even know you needed. And may that open your eyes to the reality of our sinful condition. May that bring you to true repentance. Because there are two sides to this justice here. There's two sides to God's justice that's coming, and it's black and white. Either you are declared righteous by the actions of the servant, or you receive the just punishment for your sin. He will faithfully bring forth justice. We continue reading because we see this as we look next to verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. So I think this justice part is a pretty important part of what this servant is coming to do because it's been part of these first three verses of this song. It's been, In fact, it's been the, the main emphasis behind what this servant is coming. The picture here of this idea of the coastlands wait for His law, that He's establishing justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for His law. They hunger for it. The picture is not of colonized British imperial territories that begrudgingly obey the rule of the monarchy from afar, right? Rather, the picture here is of distant nations eagerly awaiting the rule of His law. Whether we know it or not, all of humanity longs to be under the rule of God. In His Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said of Himself, Matthew chapter 5, if you want to take a note of it, it will be on the screen. But Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus said of himself, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So this servant king comes to bring God's law, God's word. He comes to bring it into fruition. And this is the justice that he comes to enact, is that God's word is true and God's word is right. And so he comes to enact God's word, to fulfill it, to show that God's word is truth. Which brings me to the next point there on your outline, that God rules in accordance with his eternal plan. Okay, so he's not just making stuff up on a whim here. He's not like, oh, the law didn't work out, so Jesus, why don't you get down there? Right? But that God rules in accordance with his eternal plan. And the quicker we grow to an understanding of God's eternal will acted out in the Christmas story, the greater we will treasure the Advent season. Okay, the quicker we grow to an understanding of God's eternal will, will, so that it's all far-reaching, eternity past, eternity future, His will acted out in the Christmas story, the greater we will treasure the Christmas story. Because as we look back on how God acted in the Christmas story, we can look forward to the second advent of Christ with expectant hope, which sustains us, present peace, which focuses A rightly realigned joy, which overflows, and an overflowing reflective love. See, this helps us to know with assurance that if God's love motivated him to act in such a way at the first advent, it absolutely guarantees his second advent, because God is speaking in complete consistency with what He's been doing from the beginning here. And so if we look at that and we say, well, here's what he did here, then we can know with the full assurance that that is what awaits us in the future. And we continue to see that in verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So in case you didn't catch it, who who? Everything has, it, has God to thank for its existence. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So again, don't miss this because I pointed this out from time to time. But notice at the beginning there of verse 5, there's the use of two titles for God, back to back. One is God, right? But then the other is His personal name, the Lord. So He's saying to the people here, don't get it twisted, okay? Thus says God the Lord. Going back to our first point, God does not rule at a distance. His rule is personal. He has always been personal. From creation onward, He has set about to make Himself personally known. The event where this is most evident and most obvious and personal is Christmas, The king steps down from his throne on high into flesh to dwell among us that he may serve us and be made known among the nations. Having already established that God does not rule from a distance as we said, we now see how God rules personally in the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord reveals himself in the person of Jesus. Because See there, thus says God the Lord. He's the one who created the heavens, stretched them out, spread out the earth. What comes from it? Gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And what does he say? I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So he's talking here to his servant. That's kind of the shift here in the, the perspective. He's talking to the servant that I will give you as a covenant for the people. And so the next point there on your outline is that Christmas is the manifest action of God's love. So manifest, right? The, Clear or obvious to the mind is what that means. So Christmas is the clear and obvious action of God displaying His love for us. And if you're not overwhelmed at the love of God manifesting in Christ at Christmas, then I wholeheartedly challenge you to reevaluate your view of Christmas. Reevaluate your joy, reevaluate your hope, reevaluate your peace. And for some of you that fall in this category of not being overwhelmed at the love of God displayed in Christmas, it may be appropriate to reevaluate your salvation. Now, I want to clarify that because I don't want a bunch of people walking out thinking that Brother Blake told you to question your salvation. All right? So, what I'm implying there is that if everything that we have talked about this Advent season, does not overwhelmingly compel you to respond with abounding joy and the love of God displayed in Christ, if it does not give you confident Christian hope for the future and an abounding peace in the present, then brother or sister, there's something wrong. And if that's you, he's calling you to himself because Christmas is for you and for me and that is what he is displaying here and saying i am sending my servant behold like you're experiencing tremendous grief and loss in the midst of this babylonian exile but believe me i'm in control and you're not going to say oh man i thought it was a real present okay and this is what we see as we look at this these elements here that are broken down for us in those verses. He's called you out of righteousness. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind so this light is so powerful and illuminating that even the blind can see to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, the prisoners, those who sit in darkness. This is so clearly a theme For John, as he begins to write his gospel and his telling of what Christ was coming into the world to do, that though he doesn't give us a birth narrative, so I'll encourage you, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the gospel of John, chapter 1. I know I've quoted it many times this Advent season. I quote it throughout the year. But this just so beautifully portrays with consistent clarity from what Isaiah is saying here, exactly what Christ was coming into the world to do. John 1, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Sounds familiar. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's Almost like they were blind. Right, But to all who did receive him, so this is the remnant, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh, of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, continues these clear themes from Isaiah is if you go to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. We looked at this this last Wednesday and prayed through it, but it's so worth looking at again because of the Christmas story in it and how it so beautifully compacts the Christmas story. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. So it's setting a standard here for what Christian love looks like. Let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you don't love, it's a clear indication that something's off. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I made this point I made this point Wednesday and I think it bears it's worth repeating again that this verse this is one of those verses that's constantly twisted among progressive thinkers in our society as if to say that God is love and love alone. But John is not here trying to give an all encapsulating view of God to say that God is love and that's it. Right? But he's saying that that is one of his attributes. That He is love. Verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son. There's Christmas. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Born to save the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This is it, that He was born to die. In His Word, He makes Himself known. In Christ, he reveals himself personally. In his law, he reveals the gap between us and him. In Christ, he fulfills the law and provides us a way to himself, providing a clear and definitive demonstration of his love for us. As we see there in those last two remaining verses in our text in Isaiah, verses 8 and 9, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So the servant is bringing knowledge of himself and salvation to the Gentile world, to the nations. This has been God's unhidden plan from the beginning. God is saying here, I am who I have always been, and I will always do what I have set out to do. And guess what? As I have always done, I will tell my people. I will make known what I am doing, that they may walk in obedience to it. Bringing me to the last point there, uh, or the last two points there on your outline. First one there being, God loves to redeem sinners for His glory. That's what we see in the Christmas story, that He loves to redeem sinners for His glory. We're not redeemed for our sakes alone, but we're redeemed that we might give Him glory. His glory He gives to no other nor his praise to carve idols, but he has always been about setting forth to make himself personally known, to rule personally in the hearts of his people. And he loves to redeem sinners for his glory as he consistently shows throughout his word and as he so clearly and manifestly shows in the story of Christmas that this is the links that I will go to to make my love known for you, that you might glorify me rightly. Lastly, I turn your attention to Luke chapter 2. The, Luke's account, Luke's birth narrative of Christ. And we look at this multiple times throughout this Advent season. We'll continue to to next weekend, but Luke 2, verse 11, the angels appear to the shepherds, telling them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I quoted this just a while ago. For, uh, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God loves to redeem sinners for his glory. And that is what Christmas so clearly shows us. Last point there on your outline. Look at verses 29 through 32 of Luke 2. One of my favorite parts of the Christmas story so often forgotten. Maybe you included as part of the Christmas story. I certainly do. So, Jesus, uh, his parents are taking him to the temple uh, according to the purification law of Moses. And so they bring him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And there's this man, this faithful remnant. His name Simeon. He was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which you see there in verse 25. So he's looking for the Messiah because he's part of that remnant that the Lord redeemed there in Isaiah. That he said, this is what I'm doing. I'm redefining my people. And it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child this is verse 27 when they brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom law verse 28 he took him up that Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Last point there on your outline. Christmas is the definitive act of God fixing his love on the unlovable. It's the definitive act of God fixing his love on the unlovable. This was the purpose he was sent to bring salvation to the Gentiles, a light for the nations. May we know it. May we, in turn, fix our love and our joy on him alone. Let's pray, church. Lord, as we consider all of these things so clearly evident to us in the Christmas story, God, I pray once again that if there's anybody here that does not have their joy in you, does not find their peace in you, does not have a personal relationship with you as you have made so clearly possible in Christ, I pray that you would convict them this morning and move them to repentance. And as you do so, I pray that you would move them to to come tell somebody, tell the person sitting next to them, come forward and, and talk to me. Lord, I pray for those of us who are here, who we find our joy in you, though we struggle to do that faithfully at times, who we, we have present peace because of the confident hope that you have given us in Christ. I pray that we would be absolutely brought to our knees the reality of your love made manifest in the Christmas story. And that we would behold your servant and give you the glory to your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.